Well, good morning, RBC, this morning. Uh, it's, uh, I suppose it's fallen to me. It's my pleasure to be able to, to bring the word this morning. One of the advantages, of course, is that I get to at least speak without the mask on. I have to tell you, I struggle with those masks. I'm not sure about you. But um, this is one of the upsides of being able to be up here this morning rather than the seats, is at least I get to, uh, to have a bit of freedom in that way. I must admit there are many thoughts that crowd my mind as we sort of gather for the first time again this morning in person. Um, one of the things I think I should mention is I certainly appreciate everyone that's come here this morning. It seems to be certainly from what I can pick up in society this moment a lot of angst about uh, people meeting together and uh, should I go here, should I go there, what are the risks, etc. So the very fact that we gather together I think tells me, you're certainly seeing you here this morning, that you think this is important and that it's worthwhile doing. So... I appreciate you being here this morning and I trust that we'll be blessed as we look at the word this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 9 and I'm going to read from verses 42 to 50. I'll be focusing more on the last few verses but um, I think there is value in, in reading the passage or the section that we're going to this morning. So if you get there... Um, Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50. Let's read it together. And I think Catherine's going to put the, um, the words up on the back there as well if you don't have a Bible with you. And the little heading in my uh, Bible is causing to sin from verse 42. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where... Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Well, as I just mentioned, we're going to focus on what I refer to and maybe you do as well, the salt sayings of Jesus in verses 49 and 50 this morning. When uh, Kath and I got married nearly 30 years ago, in fact, in a couple of weeks' time, we'll hit the big 3-0. I know that many people or a number of people within the congregation could say, well, piffle, that's plenty, you know, we, we've well surpassed that. And maybe that's the case, but for us, we're about to hit that sort of milestone at our wedding, Kath gave me a wedding present, which was a salt shaker. Uh, it was just the salt shaker on its own. It wasn't part of a set, you know, salt and pepper. It wasn't gold-plated. It was just your reasonably, I would say, standard salt shaker that you could buy off the shelf at any particular store. Um, as I did think about it the last couple of days, well, it technically wasn't a salt shaker because it didn't have the holes in the top. It was one of those ones where it was a clear plastic acrylic one where you had the stem through the middle and you ground. It was like a salt grind, to be technically correct. Nonetheless, I refer to it as the salt shaker. Um, 
You might think that that's a bit of an unusual present. Why would uh, Kath give me a salt shaker at our wedding? But um, it came out of the result of some studies that I was doing at the time in, in Bible college, doing some theological studies in the Gospels, one of the New Testament subjects that I was doing and obviously looking at the the Gospel of Mark and through that study looking at this passage as well and as a result of some of the things that I learned and discussed with Kath at the time when we were courting just prior to our, to or during our engagement, prior to marriage, um, as a result of those things that we had discussed together, she got in mind to buy a salt shaker and give that to me for a wedding present. I I trust by the time that we finish this morning you'll understand a little bit more clearly why she gave me a salt shaker for a wedding present. There's three salt sayings here. There's one in verse 49 and there's two in verse 50. Now, you probably recognise, of course, that Jesus was a master storyteller. Uh, He often used common examples from society and from life as he preached both to the people within Jerusalem, the city folk, or out in the villages or the the farmers or the shepherds or whatever. He used the common examples of things that were around about and in this case he used salt. Uh, It's possible that he used a reference to salt in numerous preaching and times that he was sharing with people because we find some parallels in the other synoptic gospels as well. Quite likely you use salt without hardly a second thought. I often do, certainly myself, and I know this sermon. Uh, But salt, of course, is an amazing substance or compound. It's made up of two chemicals, sodium and chloride. They are both poisonous substances in their own right. But combine them together and they become very useful. Salt is an essential ingredient to make over 14,000 products from textiles to plastics. Uh, It's what you wear, it's what you drove to church in, it's what you pay your bills with. In fact, so valuable in the ancient world was salt that Roman soldiers were paid in salt. The word salary comes from the Latin word salarium which means an allowance of salt. And even today, of course, we sometimes say, well, maybe the older generation, that something is worth one's salt. You have about 200 grams of salt in your body and without it, you would die. So, is Jesus just concerned about our sodium chloride levels when he tells us to have salt in ourselves? Is he out of step with modern health advice, which is all about reducing our intake? What are these salt sayings about? What is Jesus saying to us this morning? Now, before we get to them, I did read from verses 42 to 48 in, in, in ahead of that um, and you'll notice that these salt sayings come at the end of that longer passage which I think provides the, con- the context. But of course, we need to ask ourselves, what's the connection between verses 42 to 48 and 49 50? Well, as you, as you heard or as we were reading it together, you would have recognised if your hand, clear enough, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot offends, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. I think most of us recognise that that is hyperbole. The reason I know that, of course, is that as I look around, most of us have two hands, two legs and two eyes still. 
So we, we recognise that Jesus in this case is using hyperbole. But the point is easy enough I think to see. True discipleship requires serious radical action where sin is concerned. Uh, we can't deny sin as some of the early heretics did and, and John in his uh, letters the epistles of John in 1 John 1 8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But in verse 1, verse 9 again, as he follows on, says, But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I have to say that that gives me hope. I think the older I get, maybe for some of you as well, the more I realise by the grace of God go I. But these verses tell us it's necessary to take radical action in order now in order to avoid the risk of hell in the future. Now, in the, in the Greek text of the New Testament, the word hell here is from the Greek word Gehenna, which, which itself is a direct translation from the Hebrew Gehinnom, and, um, which means Valley of Hinnom. And in Jerusalem, one of the uh, valleys that are around Jerusalem was this valley known as the Valley of Hinnom. It was essentially the rubbish dump for Jerusalem. In the Old Testament times, it had actually been used as the place where some people had offered uh, child sacrifice to the god Molech, one of the Baals that had been there in the Old Testament times that the prophets railed against. But in the, in the time of Jesus, this valley had essentially become the rubbish dump. It was where people from Jerusalem threw their rubbish down the hill into this valley and it was there that the, the rotting of, of, uh, of uh, waste was going on all the time. Fires were lit to burn rubbish. They were always smoking. And for, for the Jerusalem inhabitants, this was a very, when Jesus refers to Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom. This was a very evocative picture of what hell would be like. And, you know, the old pictures that we see, of course, of, you know, the, the fires blazing, etc., etc. This is where it comes from. This valley, this picture of rotting and decay and fires and everything always going up. So, Jesus says, take radical action rather than avoid that type of fate. Now, it's the image of fire here that I think is the link into these salt sayings, this idea of this perpetual burning going off in this, in this rotting dump of a valley. And so, the first verse in verse 49, shall I say, the first salt saying, everyone will be salted with fire. As I just mentioned, I think fire here is the link to this first salt saying. Everyone will be salted with fire. Now, of course, you might ask the question, well, what does that mean? <coughs> Uh, whatever does that mean? I, I'm a bit amused. I read the statement of one of the commentators regarding this particular verse and he said it like this. This enigmatic verse was apparently as impenetrable to ancient scribes as to modern commentators. <laughs> it's a bit, of a, a bit of a pessimistic view, I think, of trying to understand what the scriptures say. Um, I don't think it needs to be as pessimistic as that. In church history, some people have actually doubted that Jesus made this statement and they've suggested alternatives uh, such as and everything will be scattered with fire. Of course, the, the trouble is, well, that doesn't sound any better. It doesn't make it any easier, does it? So I'm not too sure that we need to go for any alternatives. 
I think it's better to accept that this is what Jesus said, but what did he mean? Well, I think it's fairly clear here that both fire and salt in this case are metaphors, but how do they function together? Well, what is salt for? Of course, we put it in our food for flavouring. But salt is also used for preserving and uh, you probably know the stories of the discoveries that the early sailors and, the, and those who travelled around the world uh, discovered about their rotting meat and how to fix it and the answer was to salt the meat. It preserved the meat for the, the depth and the length of the journeys. And fire, as we've just been talking a little bit about, well, in the New Testament, of course, it is a symbol of judgement but it is also a symbol of trial and testing and suffering which comes to those who take up the cross as disciples of Jesus. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, in this, that is our living hope, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. If I understand it correctly, what Jesus is saying here is that these trials have a redemptive purpose. They can purify us. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. After having lived amongst the southern Sudanese for nearly a decade with my family when we were over there teaching in a theological college, I I must say that I'm a bit hesitant when I speak about suffering because in comparison I know that they have suffered. Almost every student that uh, was in the college where I taught had lost family members as a result of the war between the north and the south. Uh, They were living in displaced camps and most, ostensibly they still do, living in displaced camps around Khartoum, pushed out uh, to the outer extremities. They had to get water carted in, there was no power. They had to study by the candlelight and any time the rains came on a regular basis, they lived in these little mud homes that they had constructed. They were in danger of collapse through those times. It makes anything I think that I have experienced seem trivial. But it's not a matter of uh, who has suffered the most or least. A book on the subject of suffering that I read a while ago starts with these words, few human experiences are so quite so universal as suffering. Now, of course, we each have our own times of trials and sufferings But what is important is how we respond. Do we resent the trials and sufferings? Do we become bitter? Do we turn away from God? Which I know from experience, and maybe you do, that some people do respond in that way. Or do we allow the experience to mould our character, to purify us, to conform us to the image of Christ? 
At the end of the first century AD, uh, there was a, an apostolic father called Ignatius and um, maybe you've heard of him. He was on his way to martyrdom in Rome and on his way he wrote a letter to a church in a place called Magnesia which is near Ephesus in, in Turkey. <clears throat> it was one of the, the uh, early churches that had sprung up in that area. And in that letter he wrote, have yourselves salted in him and then there will be no scent of corruption about any of you for it is by your odour that you will be proved. Uh, Maybe it begins to make us think that we ought to take deodorant and eat more seriously, shouldn't we? Was Ignatius influenced by this salt saying of Jesus? I don't know. But it's certainly, I think, something that bears thinking about. But to be a disciple means that we will face times of suffering and trials, the fiery trials as we see them referred to there. What Jesus is saying to us though is that in those times the fire of suffering and trials can help purify us. This is something I think we need to remember when we are going through those times. Everyone will be salted with fire. In verse 50 there are part A and B, there are two more more salt sayings. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? There are here, of course, some parallels in the other Gospels, in in Matthew and Luke. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. And in Luke chapter 14, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Another use of salt, you may know, is as a fertiliser. I think that helps explain Luke's extra information in, in his account there. But of course we have a bit of an issue here because you see technically salt cannot lose its saltiness. It is this simple compound of sodium and chloride. It's a stable compound. It keeps its quality. So what does it mean when Jesus says salt is good but if it loses its saltiness? Well, most probably what Jesus was referring to was the Dead Sea salt which is where they gathered their salt from, a lot in that that area. And because they gathered it around the the shore of the the Dead Sea, uh, there were impurities in the gathering. They couldn't totally purify it as as a pure compound of sodium and chloride. So there were other compounds and other minerals mixed in often with that Dead Sea salt. And in that case, it was possible for the salt to lose its saltiness. The the salt would bleach out of those compounds and you'd uh, sometimes end up with other materials. In the case, for example, gypsum. The salt would bleach out and they would end up with gypsum, which of course was totally useless in terms of a flavouring. And so the result of that was they had to throw it out and they threw it out on the paths that people trod because it was a, a nice strong compound that they could actually use on the, on the footpaths and, and became a stable base. But that's all it was good for, to throw it out. It wasn't even any good as fertiliser and as a help anymore. So if we take those three references together, I think it's fairly clear, that, that is the one from Mark and the two other Gospels, it's fairly clear what Jesus is talking about. Is our ministry in the world? He reminds us of our ministry 
in the world and he gives us a warning. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? We have a responsibility to be salt in society. We preserve, we flavour and we enrich society. Now, Jesus, of course, provided the example because of his ministry, death and resurrection, the world could look forward to a future hope. Jesus saved the world from ultimate destruction and now the creation looks forward to ultimate redemption, a new heaven and a new earth. And we have been called to carry on his redemptive work in the world. And, and I appreciate Mark's comment right at the beginning of the, of the service to that effect as well. You just think of some of the biblical examples in the Old Testament. Queen Esther preserved the Jews from extermination by Haman. Uh, Haman, some of you people will know him as Haman. Okay? Um, Abraham's negotiations with the Lord over Sodom in Genesis chapter 1, verse 8, uh, Genesis chapter 18. So remember, you, Abraham's negotiating. Well, if I find 50 righteous, will you preserve? How about 45? How about 40? Mm. Starts going down and down, as you know, it gets down to 20 and 10. And of course, in the story, he could not find any righteous people, enough righteous people to preserve Sodom, and so it was destroyed. In the 1800s, you may know the name of William Wilberforce, who it was re- he was referred to or described as a tiny elfish man who almost single-handedly brought about the Slavery Emancipation Bill in England. James Boswell, who was a contemporary author of uh, Wilberforce, wrote of him after hearing one of his speeches, I saw a shrimp become a whale. Uh, Bethany gave me a book on John Stott for Christmas, just, just gone. The two girls were down. We had a good time together as a, as a family and they've gone back again. But Bethany gave me a book on John Stott, a biography. And having read through that uh, John Stott had something to say about the church assault in the mid-90s. He was actually visiting Australia at one stage and gave numerous speeches and lectures at different places and he, he said this at one stage, you know what your own country is like? I'm a visitor and I wouldn't presume to speak about that. But I know what Great Britain is like. I know something about the growing dishonesty, corruption, immorality, violence, pornography, the diminishing respect for human life and the increase in abortion. Whose fault is it? Let me put it this way. If the house is dark at night, there is no sense blaming the house. That's what happens when the sun goes down. The question to ask is, where is the light? If meat goes bad, there is no sense in blaming the meat. That is what happens when the bacteria are allowed to breed unchecked. The question to ask is, where is the salt? If society becomes corrupt like a dark night or stinking fish, there's no sense in blaming society That's what happens when fallen human society is left to itself and human evil is unrestrained and unchecked. The question to ask is, where is the church? Why aren't we acting as salt? Being salt in society is not religiosity, of course, by the way. It's a life of ministering his grace and love to this world. Being salt means that we have to get out of the salt shaker and engage. And of course, each of us has a part to play here. I have to confess that I don't do so well here. I think some people can probably speak better on such things than I can. And my focus has historically been international missions where overseas, as I said. And in some ways, I think I have found it harder here 
than being over there. How is our Lord calling you to engage in society? My point, as I say, is not to lecture on this. I think there's others who can give a better example. I think we simply need to hear what Jesus is reminding us to be, the salt of the earth and not to lose our effectiveness. There's one more thing, of course. Salt makes you thirsty. I'm not sure about you, but every time I eat a packet of potato chips, I want a drink. As we are salt in society, one effect is that some will get a thirst for the gospel. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Last saying, the third one, verse 50, the second part. Third saying, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. So, is Jesus simply concerned about our sodium chloride levels? Well, of course, here we have some connection between salt and peace. There's a passage in the Old Testament which I think may help us to understand what Jesus is saying here. In Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, it says this, Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. Salt was so common in meals in antiquity. In fact, I would, I would argue that salt is very common even today still, of course, as well. But it was so common in meals in antiquity that it came to symbolise the meal itself. And since meals were involved in all relationships, and I'm not sure just how much, if you think about it, how much our relationships are, in a sense, enhanced or built around having meals and fellowshipping together in that way, but it so was embedded, the salt in the meals and hence in the relationships, that it came to symbolise the covenant of relationship itself. Covenants were sealed with an exchange of salt. And uh, even today there is a Middle Eastern saying, and this was confirmed when we were in Sudan and I asked around a number of students and different people and they recognised that it was there in their, in, their, um, in their culture. There's this Middle Eastern saying, there is bread and salt between us. As disciples of Christ, we're called to be in covenant relationship with one another. Now, of course, we can only do that because first we are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We have that vertical relationship. But having that vertical relationship means that we also have a a horizontal relationship. And, of course, you may recognise that it doesn't come naturally. It means that we have to work at our relationships. I've lived long enough, maybe some of you have too, to realise that you don't need to go looking for trouble. Trouble comes looking for us. And there are, of course, many things that threaten our covenant relationships and they need to be maintained. It takes work to keep the peace. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 seems applicable here, I think. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And, of course, one of the greatest enemies to peace is the tongue. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I wonder if you can see now a little bit more clearly why Kath gave me a salt shaker at our wedding. 
It was there to remind us that we had entered into a covenant relationship. Um, I have to say, unfortunately, the salt shaker is no longer. Um, it, uh, it sat there for a while. It was, as I said, one of those clear acrylic ones. It had that metal shaft down the middle. And uh, having sat for a while on one of our shells, it, it got a bit uh, in humidity. It absorbed a bit of moisture. The salt got up into under the chrome of the shaft and it enlarged. It, the metal grew a little bit, cracked the plastic, and that was the end of the salt shaker as a, as a bit of a symbol. So uh, we had to throw it out. I have to say, fortunately, the marriage has lasted longer than the salt shaker. <laughs> Long may it continue. Um, but there's another reason, I think, as well, while uh, our covenant relationships are important. And it's again what I refer to as being redemptive because it becomes a further witness for the transforming power of the gospel. Our covenant relationships are important as a redemptive witness for the gospel. Uh, Let me just refer, and you might get a bit of a feeling that I have a a penchant for church history, but um, let me go back to that. In uh, around about 125 AD, there was a, a, uh, an apologist, and by apologist I mean a Christian apologist, I mean apology in the, in the sense of defence. There was a necessity at that time, Christianity essentially being outlawed, various writers gave an, an, a defence of Christianity. And so there's what's known as the Apology of Aristides. And this apologist wrote, as I said, around about 125 uh, AD, to the Emperor Hadrian during the time of persecution. Now, of course, he was a Christian and he was saying what the Christians were like, but um, if he didn't have anything to back it up, his words would have fallen flat. But the, the, the evidence of society backed up what he said and he basically said this, but the Christians, O king, while they went about and made search, have found the truth. They do not worship strange gods and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them and they love one another and from widows they do not turn away their esteem and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly and he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him to their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh but brethren after the spirit and in God. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three times, two or three days, in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Such, O King, is the commandment of the law of the Christians and such is their manner of life. Now there was a covenant relationship to me in action and it turned the world upside down. And my prayer, of course, is that we will live like that in our covenant relationships for our own sakes and for the sake of the world. Now I assume that you'll be going home shortly and uh, you'll be getting some lunch ready and eventually dinner, Uh, you might reach for the salt shaker. I hope you'll remember the salt sayings of Jesus. We will be salted by fire. That shouldn't surprise us as disciples, but how will we respond? Will we see it as an opportunity to grow closer to our Lord, to be conformed to his image? 
Salt is good, but if we lose our saltiness, how can we salt the world for Christ? Let's continue to be a redemptive influence in the world. Let's also continue to have salt in ourselves, in our relationships and as a witness to the power of the gospel to bring peace. Amen.